0: For the past three years, the Science of Reading Star Awards have honored educators who are beacons of light, guiding their classrooms, schools, districts, and most importantly, students through transformations with literacy. Now join us as we honor this year's winners at a special celebration event, which will feature celebrity keynoters and past podcast guests, Mitchell Brookins.
1: Two years ago, one of my students as a school administrator came to me on the playground and he said, Mr. Brookins, I want to be like the other kids. And I said, what do you mean? He said, Mr. Brookins, I want to learn how to read.
0: And Malcolm Mitchell.
1: When I scored a touchdown, they probably put my name in the newspaper. People probably tell me good job all around town. But when I finished one book, no one ever said anything. So which one am I more likely to repeat?
0: Find out more information and register for the 2024 Science of Reading Star Awards Ceremony at Amplify.com slash Star Awards Celebrations. That's Amplify.com slash Star Awards
1: Celebration, all one word.
0: Welcome to Science of Reading, the podcast. I'm your host, Susan Lambert. As the reading science movement continues to grow, even during this unprecedented time, it's so important to stay focused on what it takes to develop confident and capable readers. As we've learned, change can happen fast. That makes it even more important to stay connected and learn from each other. The more we learn and listen, the more prepared we'll be to lead. Together, let's voice challenges and take action. In today's episode, we talk with Margaret Goldberg and Lonnie Mednick of the Right to Read Project, two science of reading practitioners who recognize the need to shift from balanced literacy practices to evidence-based instruction. Listen as they talk about this shift and about the four-part processing model, which describes the work of the reading brain. This model will help you understand why the three-queuing system of instruction is an ineffective model for teaching reading. We hope you enjoy. Margaret and Lonnie, it's so great to have you on today's episode. Um, Really excited for what we're gonna talk about. Thanks for having us. You know, uh, like I said before we begin, we always like to hear folks introduce themselves and tell us a little bit about their journey. Like how did you end up in the Science of Reading
1: space? Well, for me, I came into it probably about five years ago. And I think what happened was that I started my education coming in as a teacher 15 years ago. I knew I wanted to be a teacher kind of all of my life. I was determined to get the kind of education and my preparation program that would make me have the skills I needed to be able to hit the ground running and do right for kids in my first few years of teaching. Um, And I graduated after a two-year program and with a master's. Went into a high-performing school in a high-performing district, and I felt really successful. I felt like I was a good teacher. I was told that by other people around me, and I was thriving until I kind of came to a point where I was like, I've been doing this for seven years. I kind of want to explore other things. Got a little bit of an itch to try new things. I took what I called a sabbatical to do some curriculum development for a couple years, and then I went into a different district as a literacy coach at what was unquestionably a failing school. It was a school that had just between 2 and 3% of the students reading proficiently. And it was my first year as a literacy coach. It was my first year in a school environment like that. And um, part of my job was to teach reading intervention, 40%, and part of it was to coach, 60%. And I was horribly unprepared to do both of those jobs. Oh, no. um, and I wanted to try to figure out how to teach kids to read as quickly as possible. I had imagined that I was going to somehow do what had been working in my high-performing classroom in a different environment, and it immediately did not work. So the idea of having long stretches of independent reading wasn't working. The idea of just asking a kid, hey, sound that word out. They didn't know how to do it. I realized that I was completely ill-equipped to help beginning and struggling readers. Mm. And so I started first with curriculum. So I had one program that I was given um, to teach by my school district and another program that I found on the shelves of my school. They were dusty boxes of a systematic phonics program. And I started teaching small groups of students with both of those programs And I started to realize that what my kids were doing in each one of those uh, small groups was entirely different. And I didn't realize this, but I was teaching on both sides of the reading wars in my different groups of reading instruction. And so I started to try to find out more about the programs I was teaching. And I really started to dive into the research, the theory and research that supported each one of them. And I realized um, that there was just a wealth of information about reading I had never been exposed to before. And I found myself staying up late at night, like just slogging through these scientific journals, trying to understand what was being said about what the eyes do when they read and what the brain is doing when it reads. And I felt like I was in over my head until finally I started to realize how what I was reading about was connecting with um, the behaviors I was seeing in my students. And from there, I started to realize that one approach I was using was never going to work, and the other was getting us success that we had never seen before. Like, I remember talking with the teachers, and they were like, the kids you're seeing for the systematic foundational skills instruction, they're the only kids that are learning how to read right now. And so we kind of went in whole hog as a team, primary grade teachers collaborating together, trying to learn how to teach reading in a new way, trying to explore the research together in a new way. And as luck would have it, a funder came to our school to do an observation and decided to fund a project for us to do similar work at what was then 10 elementary schools in our district. And that was the point where I met Lonnie. Lonnie came on um, board, and we were both working as literacy coaches and interventionists as part of that pro- program.
0: Hmm. So Lonnie there's a cue for you to pick up. Tell us a little bit about your journey. What happened before like you and Margaret intersected?
2: Yes, yes. Um, I owe a lot of what I know to Margaret. She's been a mentor on this journey. And before meeting her in 2016, I started teaching in 2009 in Denver, Colorado and was teaching sixth graders. And the demographic I was working with was definitely like majority free and reduced lunch. Uh, Students um, and my school had similar similar rates of success on the literacy and math tests, like below 10% were proficient. Mm -hmm. And in my sixth grade class, I was really blown away with the lack of access to the content. I was teaching mostly sixth grade math and earth science, and my students were struggling uh, both with the mathematical concepts, but I realized they they couldn't access those mathematical concepts because they were struggling to read. Um, so I decided after two years in sixth grade to move down to third grade to support with some more of the, that like foundational skill building. And realized after a year that third grade um, was even too late to address. Not too late for forever, but like I wanted to address. From the very beginning. So I moved to kindergarten and that's where I found my happy spot and ended the rest of my the four years that I was teaching in kindergarten and transitional kindergarten to build the foundation. And because I went into teaching through Teach for America, uh, like Margaret Margaret wasn't in Teach for America but I similarly found that I didn't have the professional, Background or experience or training or know how to really build those foundational skills that I know are so crucial for our students and building uh, accurate, fluent readers. So I just did like a lot of hodgepodging and I did what I saw from other teachers at my building and I reached out for help from coaches and I did like a dive into some of the research but was in a balanced literacy district and so the know-how from everyone in my proximity was guided reading Um, and so I did my best and saw time after time that what I was doing was opportunistic and that many of my students were really successful um, but many were not and it seemed to be this like pocket that I wasn't reaching that like really, really um, did not benefit from a lot of what I was doing in guided reading. It would be hit or miss, like a lot of the word work I was doing, like I would see growth there, but then in their application to a lot of the leveled texts, it wasn't lining up. Um, So in my last year teaching, I was in SEEDS, which is a program um, that supports like the transitional kindergarten students and teachers in our area and for I for the first time had a coach who was dialed into the reading research and dialed into the instruction that they need Um, so I was started being more targeted in the skills uh, Mm -hmm. that I was teaching and that same year I was also doing some reading intervention um, and exploring concepts for older students that I was learning through the SEEDS program um, I was inspired by my coach who let me know like, hey, you should be a coach and joined the same cohort that Margaret is speaking about. Uh, and together, like once I met Margaret, I, I learned about more of this systematic instruction and structured literacy and definitely had many aha moments and feelings of guilt and shame for the past seven years of students that I could have done more with, Um, but then like it was like now that we know better, we do better and just uh, went down the rabbit hole of (laughs) the science of reading and learned as much as I possibly can and was like in a learn, apply, learn, apply mode. And now I'm in a mode that I want to support all teachers getting access to the knowledge that they need to support their students in what we f- definitely feel is their civil right to read. Hmm.
0: We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but sort of before we move on, I'd love for the both of you to, I mean, it sounds to me like you went over and above. I mean, teacher's job, a coach's job is difficult as it is. Um, this sounds like a personal a sort of quest that you were both on.
1: Yeah, I think yeah. that's totally fair. When I look back to the probably first two years of diving into the reading research, I realized I was staying up until 10 or 11 o'clock at night and all through the weekend slaving through these journals trying to make sense of it. And I think one of the things that happened for me is that at first I felt really stupid. I felt like mm-hmm. I didn't understand the terminology. I felt like I didn't understand the studies they were referencing. I didn't understand all sorts of things I felt like they were speaking a different language and I was trying to decipher it and then as I started to feel more comfortable and I started to learn more started to find more texts that were coming out that were more accessible So I remember when I got uh, Kilpatrick's link or language Essentials that one was really helpful to me mm, right and um, there were a couple of articles by Dr. Moats that were really helpful to me where I felt like, I was actually the intended audience. One of the things that happened as I was exploring the science of reading early on was it felt like they weren't talking to teachers. Mm -hmm. I was kind of jumping into a conversation in which I didn't belong. Mm. And then over the past five years, I feel like increasingly the target audience has been teachers. And what's really been thrilling to me is that it's been teacher to teacher in a lot of instances. So that we're really trying to explain things to each other in a way that makes sense and that feels applicable to our practice.
0: Yeah. Lonnie, well, yeah. what about you? How was that? How was that discovery process for you?
2: It it definitely was uncomfortable uh, because of what Margaret is explaining. Like there was there the translation wasn't there to practice, um, but it also was. Once I started implementing, as I was learning, I gained more and more confidence because I was at, Like before, kind of like stabbing in the dark, it almost seemed, and Mm -hmm. like just like throwing ideas out and trying to figure out what worked for my kids. But as I gained the know-how and I saw directly that translate into skills and students applying what they were learning and learning how to read right before my eyes, like the students especially that I had the most difficult time reaching before, um, it, yeah, it definitely helped me feel confident and excited and know that I had the skills necessary but I, definitely what Margaret is saying in terms of the journey of translation I have noticed that in the past three years students have been uh, or the the articles have been a lot more easy to like plug and play to practice yeah. um, and that's helped both as a coach but at like I've seen the community the coalition of the willing around me grow um, which is really exciting and i think that's a lot of what margaret and i have been doing over the past five years four and a half years is translating the science to practice to make it palatable and applicable to all the teachers we're working with
0: that's amazing and and i'm going to ask you a little bit about that um but thinking back on what you said, Margaret, and you, Lonnie, too, is that it was almost like you had a mini research study right in front of you. And you sort of took that on, though. You were the one, Margaret, that dusted the, you know, dust off the boxes and opened them up to try to dig into something. What made you want to do two different programs with two different groups? Was there a reason for that? Were you just like, oh, I'm going to try this out and see what works with who or (laughs) how did that happen? No, no,
1: to be totally honest, what happened was that I had, I mentioned that I had worked in curriculum development for a little bit and the nonprofit where I was working um, was working on a K to 2 literacy program that included decodable texts. And so one of my jobs was to write decodable texts and the lessons that went with them. And I remember talking with my colleagues, and they said something about um, guided reading not being a very effective way to teach kids to read. And I was like, Wait, what? Like, that's the only thing I knew about teaching kids to read. There's this other way. Like, oh, okay. Like, I can get behind this phonics thing. Like, sure, we'll do these decodable texts. That's my job. I'll work on these lessons. And um, so when I came to the school where I was working and I was given a a program that was guided reading and was with leveled text for intervention, I could hear the voices of my colleagues being like, this isn't going to work. And I wasn't sure that it wouldn't work. I actually Mm. really felt like I believed in myself and my ability to teach. I had some confidence in teaching and I was like, if anybody can use these tools well, like I think I should be able to do it this is my job now. I'm supposed to teach this, um, intervention program. I'm going to try it. And, um, but I think it was that nagging voice in the back of my head being like, well, what if it doesn't work? That made me try another way as well. A more, um, a way that I had heard would be tried and true. Mm -hmm. So as I was running these two parallel groups, what I started to realize was that the actual instruction that I was delivering was grounded in a different belief of how reading works. And I think once I realized that, when I was like, okay, I have one program that believes that what happens for kids is that they are going to skim and scan the page, they're going to process words um, in, I don't know what the right word is, but just like in little parts and bits. And they're going to use meaning and they're going to use context and they're going to use these visual cues to come and have this comprehension. then I'm teaching this other program where students are supposed to parse every single letter in every single word in a very painstaking process. (laughs) And I was like feeling conflicted um, about that. I was feeling like I was throwing comprehension out the window and we were just focusing on these foundational skills and I was nervous. But something that happened really quickly was that I had a group of students who went from focusing on every single letter in every single word to reading automatically. And it happened for them so quickly, and they gained such confidence and independence and enthusiasm for reading, and my other reading groups were not getting there at nearly the same rate. And I think that moment of being able to see that the beliefs about reading that lead to the creation of these materials lead to different kinds of instructional approaches, and there is something that works, and there's a lot of stuff out there that doesn't work. And I got really passionate trying to find out why is it that we're in the position that we're in, where teachers can be handed tools that they can't trust.
0: Hmm. Hmm. And so Lonnie, I'm gonna turn to you for just a minute. You talked about like your passion now, you and Margaret are wanting to make sure that you can get this message to as many teachers as possible. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that the two of you are doing? Sure, Um, it comes in,
2: in different pockets. I think the past four years, we were leading a cohort of coaches So we're training the coaches who are then in a kind of train the trainers model to support the teachers at their site to implement many of the best practices uncovered through the science of reading. Um, And we did a lot of data analysis and and, um, a whole shift of ideology about what type of data to look at and how to analyze data and also did a lot of work with principals um, in supporting principals on uh, what, how to hold this work and um, how to support the processes happening in the classroom, how to monitor the data, etc. cetera. Um, at the current moment, I've shifted to being an assistant principal at one site, and I'm holding the work there, but also supporting with inquiries for a variety of different projects and folks that have reached out wanting to understand best practices and um, multiple tiered systems of support that that um, impact students uh, system wide and making to make sure that no students slip through the cracks. Hmm. And I know that uh, Margaret specifically is doing some work in Seattle. Do you want to talk about that, Margaret?
1: Well, I think one of the things that has happened, like Lonnie was saying, we were running this cohort of schools um and trying to guide teachers and coaches and principals and what was really interesting is we were all in the world of our district and then our world kind of blew up when we were in the podcast at a loss for words and I started getting a lot of inquiries from different people in all different school districts so from teachers and coaches and principals I was starting to hear from um, administrators and then also legislators and they were wondering how to replicate what we were doing in our district and so there's actually a Few different cohorts of people who are trying, they literally have science of reading coaches, which is kind of amazing to me. That's amazing. Who are dedicated to bringing the science of reading to teachers and help them implement um, best practices and to understand why behind each one of them. So, um, one of the blessings in this um, shelter in place time has actually been being able to do professional development all over the place, but just from behind a computer um, via Zoom. So I've been doing a fair amount of that, and that's um, connected to the work that Lonnie was just describing in Seattle. Mm -hmm. And then we also had the opportunity to work with several other organizations, so the Barksdale Reading Institute, the Reading League, Hill Learning Center, and Teachers Top 10 Tools to create a course on the science of reading for all of Teach for America. So that was actually kind of a neat coming home thing to do because Lonnie was a TFAer
0: right. um, who
1: hadn't been trained in the science of reading, but we had the opportunity to work on a course that would allow them to get an overview of what the science of reading is and to be able to walk away with an understanding that there is this thing called structured literacy and it is different than balanced literacy and to understand a little bit of what they might be looking for in their programs when they um, arrive at their school sites.
0: Wow. That's amazing and influential. Um, And it sounds to me like the two of you are both doing some of this in your uh, other duties as assigned or off hours as part of a personal quest.
1: Absolutely. And I think one of the things that's been neat for us with our Right to Read project work is that we've kind of become a home for a lot of different types of people who are interested in this. So absolutely teachers and administrators, but then There's like, you know, the wave of dyslexia moms who are passionate about the instruction their kids receive, but also that all kids receive, or the NAACP, which is passionate about kids receiving their civil right to read, or other organizations that are focused on professional development, uh, pre-certification for teachers, or ongoing professional development for them. So I think it's been really neat to be able to see how many people care about this, and mm-hmm. how many people are trying to figure out what they can do to make a difference, so that teachers have access to the information they need and the tools they need to do right by kids?
0: Yeah, and both of you are still in a school context, so Margaret, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Yeah, so I'm teaching Lana. first grade yep. <laughs> this year, yep.
1: um, yes. and I think that's really important. One of the things that I notice is that farther and farther away people get from practice, I think um, the harder it is for teachers to believe what they're hearing. I know that's true for me. Like, if I'm listening to somebody in professional development, I want to be like, yeah, but have you actually done what you're telling me to do? (laughs) So um, it was really important to me. I had been out of the classroom at that point for seven years. I was like, I need to go back and make sure that I can actually apply everything I know in theory to practice, because if I'm not able to do that, then I don't want to try to guide other people through that process.
2: Yeah, yeah. And that's been helpful for for both of us in our work is like being able to be on the ground and seeing things in practice. I've been covering teachers and tutors as much as possible or modeling to
0: to implement and see how it feels. Mm -hmm. That's great. Well, um, you know, this is the Science of Reading podcast. So we actually have talked quite a bit about things like the Simple View of Reading and Scarborough's Rope. Um, But I know one of the things that the both of you actually train teachers on is something called the four-part processing system. Um, And I would love for you to describe a little bit of what that is and how it relates to the simple view of of reading. So not sure who wants to start with that, but...
1: I'll start because I think it's a thing that I stumbled on that was my biggest aha. Hmm. So um, for me, when I was teaching those two different groups of students using different programs... One program was um, guided reading, and it was focused on MSV analysis, so meaning, syntax, and visuals, and that you're going to orchestrate those cueing systems in order to create skilled reading. Mm -hmm. And then I had this other approach, and I didn't know how to understand the other approach. I felt like (laughs) I didn't have a snazzy Venn diagram that was explaining what I was doing when I was telling kids that they needed to sound out every word. And so what happened for me is I was reading, and um, I don't remember what article it was, but someone referenced in some article, something that I read late at night, the Seidenberg-McClellan four-part processing system. Yeah. And I was like, what is this? So I started diving deep into it. And the place that I found it really well explained was actually in Marilyn Adams beginning to read. And so I was sitting there and I was reading her explaining why the MSV approach doesn't work. And then I was reading her explaining why the four-part processing system is a better model for understanding how skilled reading works. And then I had this moment of being like, wait, this book came out in the 1990s. (laughs) And I was so angry. I was so upset that I felt like this information had been withheld from me. And so I kind of made it a personal mission to make sure that teachers had access to a model that is more accurate and more aligned with how the brain learns to read so that we're able to understand what's happening for kids as they're trying to process words and text so lonnie and i have been doing a training that we called reading in the brain um, where we explain each part of the four-part processing system and how they interrelate with each other so that teachers are able to understand why we're um, trying to shift some instructional practices when it comes to word recognition
0: and, so, and go ahead. Be- and before you dive in, what I want to say is then, and and actually, this four-part processing model actually aligns really well with a simple view of reading when we talk about word decoding and word recognition and language comprehension.
1: Absolutely. It connects in with all of those anchors that we've been using. So like Scarborough's Rope, it connects Mm -hmm. in with Simple View of Reading. We in our work focus on Shufflebind's literacy framework, and it ties into that. So Mm -hmm. I feel like it's really helpful for teachers to be able to understand how these models work together to represent different parts of the same thing. Yeah, great.
0: Well, let's dig into it. Can somebody help us understand what this what this is?
1: Yeah, sure.
2: I think coming from Scarborough's Rope and the the Simple View of Reading, I've seen teachers feel like that's the surface or that's the content, that's the curriculum. But when we started talking about the four-part processor, it got into the kid's brain and they understood why the instruction that they were implementing actually works. And Mm -hmm. I think this quote from Emily Hanford's Hard Words, the beginning of it, really helps with the first part of the four-part processor when Emily says while we use our eyes to read the starting point for reading is sound and so the sound and really understanding how to manipulate sound all starts in what's called the phonological processor that's located in the back part of the frontal lobe of the brain. I'm touching my brain right now. Even though
1: you don't see We hear can Don't tell so you're not touching it. your brain. <laughs>
2: so I, I'm touching the back of my brain, the back of my head. And what this part, the phonological processor, does is it helps us replicate the language that we hear. And it helps us perceive and remember speech sounds and notice the small differences in words. Um, So students that struggle or don't have like a fully developed phonological processor that can be activated from this great instruction that we know works, right? They may confuse similar sounding words. They may have difficulty recognizing and manipulating sounds in words, and they may struggle when blending sounds together. So that's how it might show up. Mm -hmm. And I think this there's how it might show up has been really helpful for the teachers and coaches that I work with because they can all think of students in which that's true for. And then they can apply some of the phonological awareness practices like through Hagerty, um to strengthen the phonological processor explicitly.
1: And I feel like understanding the phonological processor was the big aha that has been missing in a lot of instruction. So For example, when we were talking about guided reading or even talking about the MSV model of reading and stuff, what's missing there is the phonological processor. There's no attention to the sounds and words Mm. when we're using that model of reading. And the reason for that is because it's based on an outdated model of reading that came from before people actually really understood the importance of phonemic awareness or now phonemic proficiency. So I feel like one of the things that's been really helpful is explaining to teachers why it's so essential that we make sure that students have that ability to hear the individual sounds and words so that the phonics instruction that we give them can actually stick. So the phonological processor is connected to the orthographic processor, which is in the back lower part of the brain. And it recognizes letters. It recognizes letter patterns, so TCH, for example, or CK. It recognizes punctuation, so it'll pay attention to um, periods and commas, semicolons, the spacing between words. It recognizes different letters in various fonts and in all different kinds of handwriting. And that was really important for the teachers that I coached to realize that um, reading is not a visual process. If it were, then you wouldn't be able to read in all caps or a mix of caps and lowercase or in a variety of different fonts. What happens when we're reading is we're actually connecting the sounds of words with the letters that represent them, regardless of whose hand is formulating those letters. So the orthographic processor stores the information that's necessary for spelling and kids who are having a hard time with that area in reading um, have a hard time remembering what we call sight words. They have a difficult time spelling and they can read really slowly. And I think it's really helpful for teachers to be able to see the necessity of having the phonological processor and the orthographic processor in communication in the fastest, most efficient way. So we're trying to make it so that students can see an individual letter or spelling pattern and instantaneously recognize the sound so that they don't have to do that laborious process um, of thinking, well, what letter was that and what sound does it make and what might this word be? Because that kind of thinking takes that mental brain space um, that gets them in the way of comprehension.
0: So we have this phonological processor and the orthographic processor, and essentially what we're trying to get is those two things to talk to each other or wire those two things back and forth really strongly. Exactly.
1: And that's like when we're talking about the simple view of reading, it's the word recognition or decoding side of the simple view of reading. When we're talking about Scarborough's rope, it's the lower portion Mm -hmm. of Scarborough's rope, the word recognition strand. What we're trying to do is get those strands woven so tightly together that there isn't any space between them so that uh, students can instantaneously connect the written word on the page with the sounds in their language.
0: Hmm. Super helpful. All right, what's the third part of this model?
2: The third part is the meaning processor. And so once the students have a strengthened phonological processor and understand the sounds, and they then map those onto letters and letter patterns and words so it's that really tight rope and they can lift any word off the page, they need to make meaning of the words. So the meaning processor is located in the temporal parts of the brain, the temporal areas. And it interprets the meaning of those words both in and out of context. So when a kid lifts a word up, like let's say the word the, or the letters together, B-O-W, it could be bow, like a bow in our hair, or a bow and arrow. Or it could be bow, like I'm bowing to you as a, a, a graceful gesture, or the, <laughs> the bow of a ship. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's all these different meanings. And like Margaret mentioned, I'm applying the meaning to all these different possible words or the letters to these possible words that I've heard or that w- are within my language. And I keep an inventory of those known words and I sub- uh, supply possible meanings for those words. Mm-hmm. And I do this pretty automatically automatically when the meaning processor is strengthened and when I'm explicitly taught language and vocabulary. Um, So students need explicit instruction in word meaning to strengthen this processor. They need to be able to make connections between related words, like word mapping, and they need exposure to lots of language, both oral and written, um, to... Grow their vocabulary and be able to
0: make meaning of what they're lifting off the page. And so is this a, a little bit like our mental dictionary that the, yeah. the meaning processor? It's yes. like the
1: mental lexicon. And I think one of the things that's really neat for us to realize is that there's a finite amount of work that the phonological processor and orthographic processor have to do. Like these are skills that they need to learn to the point of mastery. And once mm. you've got it, you've got it. You've cracked the code. But when it comes to the meaning processor, there's an endless amount of vocabulary that we can learn. Mm -hmm. And um, that's one of the things that's really fun in our instruction is providing explicit instruction to students in the meanings of individual words, but then also helping them understand the interconnectedness of words so that they're able to create a lexicon that is really helpful for them in retrieving the particular meaning of a word as they're reading.
2: Yeah. So morphology does a lot, like explicit instruction with morphology and word meaning Roots and suffixes support students a- being able to apply to all the the multisyllabic words in their text. They first need to have a strong phonological and orthographic processing ability so that they can not be scared when they get to unfamiliar <laughs> words and like historically, um, a lot of instruction is like, oh, when you get to an unfamiliar word, try to use context. Or what I see most with some of our struggling readers before this instruction is they would skip it. Mm-hmm. And those big words hold most mm-hmm. of the meaning in the right. text that we're reading. So um, that instruction and giving them the tools to uh, to decode mm-hmm. and syllabicate will help them um, being able to to get to those tricky words and make meaning from it.
1: And I think what's so important about what you're saying is like that. So the phonological processor and orthographic processor are in communication with each other. And we're trying to make that as uh, wired efficiently as possible. And then once the word has been pronounced or the possibilities have been pronounced bow or bow, then it's shooting up to the meaning processor. And it's like, what are all of the meanings that I know for bow or bow? The last step in the four-part processing system is the context processor. So that's what's going to help you determine, should it be bow or should it be bow, and what is the appropriate meaning in this context? So the context processor kicks in last, and it helps us to be able to distinguish between similar-sounding words. um, And it also helps us resolve the ambiguity of words with multiple meanings, like bow or bow. But it plays only a really small role in word recognition. And I think one of the biggest instructional shifts that we have to make as primary grade teachers is to realize that kids come to us with quite a bit of language. So they've been speaking for four or five years by the time they come into our kindergarten or first grade classes. And so that means that their context and their meaning processors are stronger than their orthographic or phonological processors. So they're coming to us with language. That means they're going to want to use that language as a compensatory strategy for not being able to code to decode the words. So when they get to a a word that they don't know, they're going to want to guess it using words that they know or using the context or using the picture or using anything they can to get away from having to do the hard work of sounding a word out. So the big instructional shift that we've been coaching teachers through is helping them to realize that our primary responsibility as early grade teachers or teachers of struggling readers is to teach them that, no, their go-to strategy actually needs to be to sound out the words that are in front of them. Once they arrive at a pronunciation of a word, that's when the meaning and context processors should be kicking in, not yep. before, not as a compensatory strategy.
0: And that's hard work for kindergarten and first grade kids. And I have to imagine, I never, I taught, my youngest was third grade as the, is the classroom that I was in um, or the grade level I was in. I never taught KN1, but it seems to me that, that sometimes we want to be a little protective of kids that are young like that and not want them to have to go through hard
1: work. Do you find that to be true? I think that is absolutely true. So seeing the labor-intensive process of sounding out words, like we feel sorry for them and we want to bail them out. Yeah. But I'm going to say something else which um, is you know possibly controversial. I think it's unpleasant for the adults. <laughs> and I say that as a current first-grade teacher who is working with a group of kiddos where it is very slow and laborious. Um, Some researchers have called it the grunting and groaning stage. (laughs) So they get to a word and they're like, trucks, trucks. Like it is just just so slow. And I think one of the things that can happen is that we get bored in that instruction. We find it to be kind of mind numbing. We know that they're not getting the opportunity to comprehend the text because we can't comprehend the text when it's read that slowly, right? Mm -hmm. So we feel like either our students are being cheated out of the opportunity to make meaning from the text or we feel like, can we just rush this thing on a little bit more? <laughs> like, I'm impatient. Yeah. Can we get to the next thing that I want to teach? Because having to listen to this grunting and groaning and sounding out is really painful. But I think one of the things that had to happen for me just one time before I can, became completely converted was to see that every single child, even if they're in that grunting and groaning stage for a very long time, emerges from it as an automatic reader. They will get there. It's just the amount of practice that they need in order to get there varies from child to child. And once I realized that I could trust students to emerge from this laborious process as automatic readers, once I realized that this notion of a word caller doesn't really exist, that just means a child who hasn't received high quality vocabulary or language development. um, It's not a condition that you create through teaching a child to decode. Once I felt less afraid... Then all of a sudden I was like, oh, no, we just need to grin and bear it. We're K-1 teachers. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, we have to do this thing.
2: (laughs) Margaret, I think that's a really great point. I've many times called it, like, the labor of love stage. Yeah, I love that. And I've seen that it's not necessarily painful for the kids, like you said, like, I know uh, we've heard somebody say the thrill of skill and students only wanting to read their decodable books because they can and they have success with it. They have the the accuracy and they've been taught all the skills to be able to read through with success. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's that sounding out of the the words at the beginning that makes them fast and automatic.
1: Yeah, and actually what Lonnie just said is a... part of a quote that we display often in PD that we deliver, which comes from Dr. John Shufflebein. and it's, Ironically, sounding out words, which makes students slow readers, in the end, after much practice, makes them fast and automatic. For this reason, non-automatic readers should not be encouraged to read faster and faster. If there's an emphasis on speed, students will stop sounding out words and instead will start guessing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I think what happens a lot for teachers is that we don't realize that because we are automatic readers, we are rushing our students yeah. and they're trying to please us and make us happy. <laughs> so they're trying yeah. to say the words as fast as they can. And it's actually undermining our foundational skills instruction. We're mm-hmm. teaching them the bad habit of guessing instead of allowing them to go through that laborious process of sounding out each word as a labor of love to emerge an automatic reader on the other side.
2: Yeah. And that speaks to the modality of instruction for different parts of the simple view of reading or Shufflebine's framework or the Scarborough's rope, right? In the encoding decoding side or the word reading side, we need to go at the pace of the child and like can't leave anything up to chance. Right, we want to really strengthen the phonological processor and the orthographic processor at the speed in which the student needs. And then for explicit instruction in a word meeting, this can be done with with really rich grade level complex text. Um, and so we're like, you know, really engaging in high level thinking to support students' mastery of, like. Building their lexicon, and we're not stuck with some of those like beginning level books that are not decodable, and trying to engage in comprehension conversations around like um, "I'm going to the park," <laughs> for yeah. example. Yes, yeah. hmm.
0: and it, you know, I think one of the hopefully we're dispelling this myth, but one of the myths is that. Um, folks think that if you believe in the in the science of reading or the simple view of reading that it's just about phonics and clearly the four-part processing system uh, Margaret I think it was you that said you know when you get to the meaning processor. Like that's endless. Mm -hmm. Right.
1: Yeah. And I think one of the things that's so important is that when we're thinking about the instruction that strengthens the connection between the phonological and orthographic processors, that instruction should be at a quick and lively pace. If we're going to quote our favorite Anita Archer, Mm -hmm. Um, it should be quick and lively. It should be fast. We should get some quick feedback from students. It should be engaging. It should be highly productive. And It's not actually a big portion of the day, right? Like when I am as a first grade teacher right now, I'm teaching foundational skills instruction in differentiated groups, but my students receive about 30 to 40 minutes of it. The rest of the time is focused on language development. The rest of the time is discussing rich texts or diving into math concepts or having academic discussions. The whole point of teaching foundational skills well is that you do it in a very intense way that's um, providing students a lot of stimulation. They actually, like Lonnie said, get like the thrill of the skill of being able yes. to sound out a word. You should have heard one of my kids today. He sounded out, he's like trucks, 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 trucks. <laughs> like He was just so <laughs> excited that he had sounded out that word and heard it and there was so much joy behind it. Um But, you know, that's still just a small part of our day. And the rest of it is actually focused on the rest of Scarborough's rope or on the language comprehension side of the simple view of reading. I think one of the things that opened up for both me and Lonnie was realizing, like, once we got away from the idea of leveled text, once we got away from the idea of students needing to decode and comprehend simultaneously, when we realized Mm -hmm. that we could actually teach these skills separately and then mm. they could come together when students are automatic readers. It allowed our students to be able to get access to high-quality text faster. It's like all texts prior to books that you can check out from a library or books that you can get um, in a bookstore, they're all manufactured. They're all inauthentic texts, right? So you picked predictable text, level text, or if you picked decodable text. It's right. just that decodable texts are the most efficient way to get there, to get to the authentic mm-hmm. text.
2: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm it's taking a a disfluent reader and moving them to fluent mm-hmm. at a rapid rate and it's how are we going to spend that valuable instructional time in differentiated small groups
0: hmm. that's so lovely um so you know the the two of you both you know you've given some examples of how you've seen this in your classroom as you're teaching teachers to look at things differently um any top-of-the-mind stories that you can think of, of how this has changed their approach or their aha moment?
1: Well, I think one of the moments that's sticking with me um, came rather recently in a professional development session I was leading, and we were talking about how the process of wiring the phonological processor and orthographic processor together, that's an unnatural process. And we're actually hijacking parts of the brain that are meant for things like facial recognition in order to be able to recognize letters. So this process that we're asking the brain to do um, is not natural. And there's no reason that we should expect it to come naturally for kids. In fact, what we should expect is that reading is going to come as a struggle for most of our students. And one of the things that we like to display in PD um, is Nancy Young's reading ladder, And when teachers are able to see that and they're able to see that actually, it's a majority of students who need a structured approach in order to be able to learn to read, then what happens for us is we have a shift in thinking where we realize like we should anticipate reading difficulties and we should be prepared to be able to address them. And I think that shift is huge as a primary grade classroom teacher to realize, I'm expecting my kids to come to me and to have difficulty with reading and I'm going to strengthen these processors and I'm going to help them interact with each other, provide high quality instruction. And on the other side, they're likely not to need a label of special education. And Mm -hmm. I think that's a big shift for teachers Mm -hmm. who had been thinking like, oh, well, if they don't catch on with the guided reading instruction that I do, then I'll put in a referral for special education and we'll see what comes Mm -hmm. up for them. Right. And I remember one of the teachers that I was working with, um, seeing the reading ladder and hearing that reading difficulty is natural. And she started crying and she was like, I just had it all wrong. And I was like, what? I, I hear you and I'm feeling this right now. Like, why are you crying? Um, can you put words to it? And she was just explaining like, if this is what I had come into teaching with, I would have done it all differently
2: mm-hmm yeah I resonate with that I, I think that both not having the knowledge of these different processing systems but also not collecting the right data mm-hmm. um, I think that's been a big shift and like because um, what you measure you treasure <laughs> and like we were measuring what level a student was at and that was what we were communicating to families yeah um and like, there was a big like, well, what do I do now? When we asked our teachers and coaches not to use a leveling system and to instead get, like, collect information about the sp- specific letters students knew and the sounds they knew and how they were at blending the words together um, and which sight words they know and all sorts of different like specific skills. And once we gave teachers that data, and the, a curriculum that could move students in a, um, a systematic scope and sequence, then that, that was a huge mm-hmm. revelation for many of the teachers that I worked with. And they had similar moments of like, wow, like I had, or like the teacher Margaret is just talking about, like, wow, I, was, I wasn't doing what I could. And now that I have the data, I know specifically where to start instruction with each student. And I'm not leaving anything to chance.
1: And I think that data also has another shift, which is that it's about specific concrete things that you can teach a child and the child can learn how to do. Yep. And that kind of conversation that you have where do they know it? Yes or no? Maybe the answer is no. No have you taught it? <laughs> Maybe the answer is no. How yeah. will you teach it? We're going to help you to be able to teach it. And then you're going to monitor to make sure that the child learns it. That kind of accountability is a really big shift because I think a lot of times what happens for us when we're talking about students and we're t- I've heard so many teachers and so many administrators talk about like, oh, he's a level G reader. And mm. it feels as if you're describing the child rather than Mm -hmm. you're describing the impact of your instruction. And I think the shift in data is really important because we realize that our student data is actually a reflection of us and the instruction we've delivered and how well it was suited for our students and how well they absorbed it. And it becomes a discussion about practice. Whereas if you're talking about students and their reading levels, it becomes a discussion about the child and is the child reading enough at home or are other people reading enough to the kid or is the kid focused in class or not or how do they behave during independent reading? We start, um, we go into a world of judgment Mm -hmm. instead of a world of um, operating like a clinician thinking about the concrete things that we can do and how we can monitor its impact.
0: Mm, That's really powerful, what you just said there as a matter of reflection of practice.
1: Yeah, I think too often we as teachers have been trained in our credentialing programs and in our districts and in our professional development to see teaching just as an art. And it absolutely is an art. Like we express ourselves as teachers in so many different creative ways. Every teacher has a persona and a personality and a way of setting things up. But when it comes down to teaching reading, we actually need to approach it as scientists. We need to collect meaningful data. We need to follow best practices in implementing it. And we need to monitor our students' progress. And I think that actually is one of the reasons why the science of reading is scary. Because it means Mm -hmm. we have to give up some of our autonomy. And mm-hmm. it means that we have to teach in a way that may not feel natural to us. And we realize that we can actually be judged according to data. And we start to have, like Lonnie was describing, some feelings of guilt that can come up, when our feelings of sure. anxiety. And I think one of the things that we need to do is to help teachers understand that um, the role of instructional leaders, the role of, in many cases, researchers, is um, trying to be supportive And trying to help us all do the good work that we intended to do when we enter this profession that we're trying to lift each other up not bring each other down
0: yeah well that was um very very well put um, and it feels like a good place to sort of wrap up and i would love if you could each and Lonnie, maybe we'll start with you uh if you could each sort of give our listeners a takeaway Um, something you want them to think about, remember, dig into more. Um, Lonnie, what do you think? I would say to not
2: give up that it may be overwhelming, but find yourself some folks, similar minded folks and build a coalition of the willing and um, share what you're learning. I would suggest like diving in and applying what you're learning, um, as soon as you can so that you can really watch, um, and admire and celebrate the growth with your students. But, um, it is difficult, especially if you have like any naysayers or differing opinions within your school buildings or in your community. But I assure you that, that if you really stick to it, you will get really great results.
0: Mm -hmm and feel successful for it. Oh yeah, for sure. Margaret, how about you?
1: I think everything that Lonnie said, I would second. There's a reason why we work so well together. (laughs) Um, But I would throw out there that um, if you as an educator find yourself really truly believing something, that it's important to ask why. So Mm -hmm. if you find yourself really truly believing that something is true, then you should feel comfortable and empowered to look for the evidence to find out if it really is supported. And I think one of the things that I've discovered is that as I started to unpack some of the things that I believed, some of them I was able to find really exciting studies that reinforce my belief and I was able to say, like, hey, this is so cool. Like, we were just (laughs) recently talking about continuous blending and how there's research from area on why this is such a great practice to do with students who have struggles in phonological processing. But there have been many things that I have had the thought of, like I believed that the number of books that a child had at home would determine their educational outcome, so we need to give kids more books. Mm -hmm. And when I actually dove into the research and unpacked that, I realized that that actually, it's not a cause and effect, and it's much more complicated (laughs) than that. And I found myself reading a lot of studies that contradicted things that I thought I knew. So I think something that I would suggest to people is to feel brave in being able to unpack the things that you think you believe or the things you think you know, and to find out why, whether the evidence supports it or not, and to feel brave in doing that journey transparently with people around you. So you're sharing the new things that you're learning that contradict what you thought you knew, and you're sharing the things that reinforce it with your colleagues as well. I think we all need to be open in our learning.
0: Yeah, that's great, and and one of the ways people can find um, some of that help and support is right through the website Right to Read Project. What's the website? Yes, so we are
1: the Right to Read Project. And I think one of the things that we try to do is create the blogs that we wish we had had when we were first learning about the science of reading. (laughs) So um, we try to write with the intention of a teacher being able to print something out or send a link to a colleague to be able to share something that could be read like during a lunch period or while you're putting things through the coffee machine. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's one of our and we're also published on reading rockets so you can check us out there
0: that's great well thank you both for being on today thank you more importantly for the work that you're doing and for some of the resources that you mentioned in today's episode we'll be sure to link our listeners in the show notes to those so that they can follow those threads as well but again thanks so much it was such a pleasure
1: we're happy to talk with you
0: thank you so much for listening Are you ready to learn more? Make sure you join our free virtual literacy symposium, Literacy in a Changing World, Moving Forward Together. It's on Thursday, October 15th, and information is in the show notes. Also, be sure to stay connected by subscribing on your favorite podcast app and join our Facebook discussion group, Science of Reading the Community. Until next time, keep the hope, take the action, and stay in touch.